Good morning, Life Fellowship. I will tell you this morning that I had a little squabble with Ben about this passage that we're going to be in this morning. Because when we go through these passages, if you read from an English Standard Version of the Bible, there are sections for each of the chapters. And generally speaking, we stick with the sections. And that's how we go through the different sections, because they're logical starts and conclusions to different thoughts in the Scripture. And I've been looking forward to the fact that I was going to be in Philippians chapter 4. It's one of my very favorite passages. And verse 8 is a particular passage uh, that, that I love because it talks about what we're supposed to put our focus on. Whatsoever is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely, these are the things we're supposed to think on. And so I pull up on my assignment for this morning, and I look, and it stopped at verse 7. And I went to Ben and I said, how come, because this is supposed to end after verse 9, how come you ended it at verse 7? And he goes, because I wanted to teach verse 8. <laughs> so I kind of feel a little bitter this morning because verse 8 being one of my very favorite passages and, and so forth. And I get to go to verse 7 and then stop. But as I studied this passage, there is so much that the Lord is saying to us, so, such rich uh, uh, meaningful themes that he's got in here. So we're in Philippians chapter 4 this morning. When I preached two times ago, I, I kind of told you, look, I'm, 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 I'm trying to wind you up, all right? It was, a, it was an inspirational message, and I wanted you to remember some important thoughts that, that Paul was sharing. And, and, and then when I preached last time, I went into professorial mode, all right? And, and so we were really deep and did the word studies and the verse by verse and the analysis and so forth. And, and so today I'm going to take a third tack, all right? And I, I want you to hear me today as a pastor, as a, as a guy who's a little further down the road than many of you, as someone who's, who's, who's been a pastor for over 30 years. I kind of want to draw alongside of you and put my arm around you a little bit, all right? I want to love on you. I want to remind you of some things. And so today, if you'll kind of see me in that light and from that bent, I believe the Holy Spirit will bring some things to your heart and to your mind that, that even if it's not for today or this season in which you are going uh, through right now, maybe there'll be a day in the future where these words will resonate deeply within your heart. When we read this passage, we remember that the Holy Spirit used Paul to pen the words. When I was a kid, some of you, you remember back in the 70s, there used to be a brand of watch. I don't even know if they make them anymore. Anybody remember Timex watches? Yeah. And one of the things about Timex watches, they were kind of an everyman's watch. They were, you know, like a Rolex where you got to mortgage the house and the car and the kids and everything else to be able to get one. But they, they, were, they were kind of an everyman's watch. Um, but they were also very, very durable. And their commercials would show... You know, somebody dropping a Timex watch, you know, off of a building or, you know, you know a, a, a porpoise swallowing it and spitting it back up. I mean, they had absurd, you know, monkeys playing with it. And, and at the end, do you remember what they would say? Timex. Takes a licking, keeps on ticking. Y'all remember, some of you are old. You know that? So that was it. Timex took a licking, but kept on ticking. And when I read Paul's life, he was the Timex of the, of the apostles, all right? He took a licking and kept on ticking. Paul's life was filled with gut-wrenching experiences. 
First, it was his worldly ambition, his rise to the upper echelons of his little corner of the world, his passionate drive that led him to murderous enforcement of a threatened ideology that he held dear. Then, he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus. He loses his sight. He goes into years of re-education and discipleship and instruction on the backside of the desert. He emerges with a thorn in his flesh that he references multiple times in his writing. We don't know what it was, but we know that it was devastating and irritating to him. And then he faces a massive mission, an even bigger credibility problem with the people he was supposed to lead and serve. He had enemies at every hand, challenges galore, obstacles that came from his past, his present, and his future. He was threatened, abused, chased, stoned, whipped, shipwrecked, gossiped about, maligned, imprisoned, wanted and hunted, and constantly debated. At the same time, while all of this was going on in his life, his love for Christ deepened. His faith took root and produced amazing fruit. His passion for the non-believers, the enemies of the gospel, didn't diminish. In fact, it increased. His desire to plant churches in new places inspired him to jump on ships and walk and travel hundreds and hundreds of miles to new destinations. His pursuit of the Great Commission was unrelenting. He earned his living on the side, making tents while holding meaningful conversations with his customers and preaching at night. His care for the flock was unending. He met people, he remembered people, he knew them by name. He traveled, he wrote, he preached, he argued, he stood trial, he waited, he fled, he walked, he talked, he explained, he defended, and he stood with uncompromising resolve. He's an amazing guy. Amazing. All that he went through, all that he experienced, and yet he writes over and over and over and over and over again, in almost every one of his letters, have joy. Be joyful. Rejoice. Experience peace. Reach for contentment. Don't be anxious. And I look at the message in comparison to the lifestyle, and I'm like, how did you do that, Paul? How in the world did you pull that off? I'm constantly having conversations with people that I love and respect, people that are journeying alongside of me and have a relationship with me, and here is what I hear over and over and over again. I'm anxious. I can't sleep. I'm a nervous wreck. I'm hurting. I'm depressed. I feel dark. I want this to be over. I don't have any rest. I fret. I'm uncertain. 
Anxiety is everywhere we turn. And you know, the reality is, we live in a generation of angst, but we have the most free nation that's ever existed on the planet. We have opportunity everywhere. Luxury and opulence, convenience and privilege and security like few generations have ever known. At the same time, many of us feel a deep sense of unrest, of threat, of insecurity, of uncertainty. We are the anxious generation. Unless you feel a little pious about the fact that you don't experience that, I would just remind you to look around you. A week ago yesterday, a mass murderer walked into a grocery store and took the lives of innocent people just because he didn't like the color of their skin. Political extremism is now mainstream, both for the right and for the left. The stock market is in a free fall. I don't even look at my retirement account anymore. <laughs> Wars in Europe again. Terrorists actively plot to disrupt our lives. Social de uh, media demands our constant engagement and tells us whether we have value by the number of clicks and likes we get. Even choosing a Netflix show creates anxiety in my life. My wife and I decided to sit down the other night and have, watch a movie, right? And of course, we play that game. It's like when you go out to eat. What do you want to watch? I don't care. What do you want to watch? Okay, I'll pick some. Oh, no, I don't want to watch that one. You know how that goes, right? So first, we have to fight over who has to pick the movie. Not who gets to pick the movie, who has to pick the movie. And we start. Click, 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 click. This category, that category. Oh, suggestions. 30 minutes in, she goes, here, you choose one. So I pick up the remote. 30 minutes later, and I said, let's just go and take a walk. <laughs> 9,000 channels on TV, hours and hours of streaming, and we can't make up our minds. It creates anxiety in me. Oh my goodness, I might pick the wrong movie. I mean, really? Seriously? This is what my life has become? They want to bring drag queens to our elementary schools to tell stories to our kids. Use the wrong pronoun with someone and you're going to get hauled into HR. We're more aware of racial conflict than we have been in, a gen in, in generations. And by the way, how many waves can a pandemic have? At least 10 cases in the church this week. And thankfully, all except for one are relatively mild, but it looks like it's coming again. And then we got monkeypox. But my 24-year-old, 25-year-old, 26-year-old, they have a college degree at last. Yeah, and they got $100,000 worth of student debt, right? And they're living in your basement. Had to take out a second mortgage last week so I could fill up my car. I'm waiting for the next big scandal to hit my favorite Christian author or blogger or preacher. Do I even want to have kids in this broken world? That's the question my college kids ask me frequently. Doesn't it seem that our culture, our country, our communities are falling apart? Yeah. If you look at our world today, anxiety, some of you right now are saying, like, wow, I came to church to hear this. <laughs> I came to church to get away from this. But it's real. It is real. And I want to, as your pastor, say to you, I get it. We hear you. 
And I'm not going to diminish it because I see the impact, we see the impact. The pastors of this church, the elders are frequently dealing with and hearing from folks who are burdened so deeply by the confusion of the culture, the direction of things, the details of life that it's overwhelming. And we're a little embarrassed about it because, yeah, we live in Lake Norman. And yeah, compared to a lot of the world, we've got it made. And yet, I can't deny this feeling of hopelessness or overwhelmingness that comes over me and feels suffocating. And now you want to come and pull up a verse of scripture and talk to me about joy and peace and contentment? No, let's be real. What I feel is anxiety and pressure and stress and depression and fear. That's what I feel. That's why I think it's important that we take a look at this passage. Let's journey through it together. Let's let God's Holy Spirit and his word speak to us things that, in all honesty, defy logic and emotion and feelings. And so here we've got Paul, who should have been a walking basket case, who should have been so paranoid that every time he turned around, he wondered who was out to get him now. Friend, foe, didn't matter. They were angry with him. His friends brought up his past. His foes brought up his present. And his future kept ending up in jail and would eventually end up (laughs) at a martyr's point. And yet he gives words of wisdom to us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So how can we find joy in the midst of anxiety? When we are consumed with Christ... The Word of God says authoritatively, you can choose and find joy in the midst of your circumstances, in the midst of anxiety, in the midst of turmoil, in the midst of darkness and depression. So let's begin looking through these verses. We'll begin in verse 1. We did, I didn't have the uh, reader read all of these verses, but we're going to go through them this morning. Verse, four, or verse 1 of chapter 4 is just one more time as he's transitioning into this next uh, collection of thoughts. He's, he's greeting his brothers. He's, he's reminding them how much he loves you. He's putting his arm around them. He's drawing them near because he wants to kind of whisper in their ear a little bit, encourage them. And he's saying, you know what? You can stand firm in the Lord, my friends. Now look what he says in verse 2. I entreat Euodia and Sentuke to agree in the Lord. By the way, are you impressed that I could pronounce those names like that? I studied longer on pronunciation of those names than I did the entire sermon. <laughs> I had some help as well. But Euodia and Sentuke to agree in the Lord. The first thing I want you to note is this. Don't ignore the stress factors. Don't ignore the stress factors. Paul is getting ready to go into a lengthy explanation of how you can live above your circumstances. But before he goes into his explanation, before he goes into his admonition, before he goes into his challenge to his friends, to the people that will read this for generations, he says, by the way, i got to stop for just a moment. I got, we got a couple of ladies in the church that need some attention. And he said, I'm going to need Eudea and Syndicate to... Just bear with me for a moment. 
And I want you to notice something that he does here because it's really important. And every word of God is inspired. So remember this, that often God is teaching us something significant in the details. He says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche. Now that's called a double imperative. He could have said, I entreat Euodia and Syntyche and been done with it. But the precision of this is really significant. Because when you say something twice in the way that he did in the Greek, this is an urgent appeal. It is, it is more than a casual mention. It is a pleading, a begging. The word entreat here has a lot of power to it. And the fact that he said it not once but twice says, give this priority. Before we talk about these other things, I need you to focus on this. And he's saying, we got conflict in the church at Philippi and we can't ignore it. We got to go after it. And he said it involves two people, and he named names. Man, it, that's, we don't all know who these women are. They're never mentioned again. They were never mentioned before. Here they are, recorded for all of eternity in the Word of God. Boy, how'd you like that said about you? All right? And not like, oh, I'm going to commend you for your peaceful attitude and your godly leader. No, no, no. It's like, would you two please just get along? Would you too find a way to get over your conflict? And yet Paul calls them out as he's getting ready to do this. And I believe that scripture, because it is so intentional, is doing so. Because we need to remember this. Some of the greatest stress, some of the greatest difficulty that we have in our life, the anxiety that comes from conflict is because we're not living out the harmony that God's peace calls us to live in. Division, disharmony, arguing, agenda pushing, disunity are all sources of anxiety. That's why scripture tells us that as much as it is possible, Romans 12, 18, as much as it is possible, if it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And let me just be really blunt. Have you in your lifetime ever experienced anything? You may not be on it, and if you're not, you're smart. But have you experienced anything that is as anxiety-inducing as social media, as cable TV, as the typical website news site? I can tell you I can start off my day and I can have time with the Lord and I can pray and I can feel good and the birds can be singing and the temperature's just right and all I've got to do is listen to five minutes of radio or check my Facebook or listen to a podcast on the news headlines and the next thing you know, I'm a twittering basket of nerves and anxiety. Why is that? Because there's so much conflict in the world. There's so much conflict relationally. There's so, much, there, 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 there's so much disputing and arguing and name calling. And whether it's Twitter or Facebook or Snap or Instagram or, or whether it's Fox News or CNN or NBC or whether it's just the way we conduct our, ourselves and the conversations that we have day by day at work and at home, our conflict creates anxiety. And so at the very beginning, Paul said, let's just not ignore this. Let's deal with this. you got a couple of people in the church. No wonder you're a mess. No wonder you're struggling. No wonder you're forgetting important things. Y'all are choosing sides. You're, you're debating, and you got this going on in the middle of you. And Paul would address this regularly in all of his churches. He was constantly having to put on a black and white striped shirt and referee 
when he counseled parents and spouses, when he counseled employers and employees, when he, comp- when, when he, when he was comp- uh, talking about the conflict that was going on in the Corinthian church, when he's talking about what was going on with you know, the, the false teaching and, 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 and uh, uh, those who would inject works into salvation over and over and over again, he was having to step into the middle of conflict with clarity. And here's the deal. He didn't ignore it. He didn't whitewash over it. He didn't flee from it. He didn't let somebody else handle it. He got involved with resolving it. And folks, we ought to be peacemakers in our world, in our families, in work. God has called us to this mission as much as is possible. As much as you have the power to do it, is what he said in Romans. If, you, if it depends on you, you be the peacemaker. You be the one that chooses harmony. You be the one that lowers the temperature. You be the one that confronts unkindness. You be the defender of the weak. You be the writer of injustices. You be the agent of peace. And in doing so, we will be healthier. We also need to be mindful of our potential to cause stress and anxiety in others by fussing over inconsequential things. Many times we can find ourselves becoming spiritual Karens and Chads in life, not being proactively seeking of the unity that God has called us to. You say, yeah, but you're talking to church people. We we always get along, right? (laughs) No, no. Churches are often hotbeds for controversy and conflict. You know why? Because we're all selfish. We all want things our own way. We all like things that make us comfortable, and we tend to be irritated by those that stretch us or move us or challenge us or, Lord forbid, even try to change us. I was counseling a pastor not long ago. It was a small church, church of fewer than 50 people, and he said, when, we, when, when I walk in front of it, he said, I can feel the open hostility between one side of the room to the other side of the room. And I said, wow, what's going on? What is it? Is it a doctrinal issue? Is it, is it a sin issue? Is somebody being immoral? Is some, said, no, 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 no. We changed the time of Wednesday night service. And they had a division in their church over something. You say, oh, well, that's just silly. That could never happen here. Oh, really? I'm not going to give you examples, but yes, it can happen here. All right? Sometimes it's a little easier to hide, quite frankly, in a larger church. But you know we're all at our nature. all at our, And by the way, I'm not saying you. I'm saying us. I'm selfish. I don't like new songs. They make me uncomfortable. I don't, you know. If I know them, all right. I always have this fear because I don't sing that well anyway. And you know, and I'm trying to sing along because I, you know, I'll be a team player, right? But I always have this fear that I'm going to like blurt out a song or, or word. You ever see anybody do that in church? And you're like, man, he doesn't know that song either, does he? You know, I've done that before. It's kind of like every, every once in a while, like everybody sits down and you, you don't sit down, <laughs> you know. And there you stand, and then all of a sudden you do this. You, know, you ever see that happen in church? <laughs> and, 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 they go, and then they slink down. I always have that fear when I'm singing. I want to be comfortable. I don't want people noticing me. I want to fit in. I get anxious. I'm coming to my point later on about how I need to deal with this, but the bottom line is even in churches, Satan will give you reason to be anxious. He will give you reason to be dissatisfied. He will give you reason to rob you of your discontentment. And here I am, your pastor, and I'm saying, you know what? You know what? In a thousand years. No, 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 no. In a hundred years. In a hundred years, you're going to know all the words to the important songs. You are. 
And you're not going to think about, oops, I might get a word out of place. And you know what? You're not going to care about the temperature. You're not going to care about the volume. And you're not going to care about the lighting. You're not going to care about what kind of car you drove in or what kind of house you're going home to. In 100 years, then it's going to go by just like that. For most of us, it's going to be less than 100 years. But what Satan wants us to do is be distracted by the details that rob us of the harmony and the unity and the peace that drives away anxiety. Paul pointedly called out Eudea and Syntyche and basically said, get over it, okay? Find a solution. Work it out. And by the way, if you can't do it, then I'm going to bring my friends in. And we're, we're, we're going to solve the problem one way or another. I'm asking you two to work through it. If you don't want to work through it, then we'll bring in some elders and some friends and so forth. And we'll all work through it together. But we're not going to ignore the disharmony. And folks, let me say this to you. Whatever is causing the disharmony in your life, give it attention. If you need to get off of Facebook, get off of Facebook. If you need to, if you need to end a relationship with someone who is toxic, then end the relationship. If you need to get counseling, go get counseling. If you need to get coaching, get coaching. If you need to eat at a different lunch table, young people, eat at a different lunch table. But the bottom line is this, your joy in the Lord ought not be stolen by those who seek to bring conflict into your life. This is Paul's first step. Here's the second one. Look, if you would, in verse 3. And he goes on and he's still talking about these two ladies. He said, I ask you also, true companion. And we don't know who this is. I wish I wished he said who it was. Um, the, the word actually here for companion is yoke fellow. So this is somebody that's apparently really close to Paul, like in the ministry with him. Like, like, like me and Ben, all right? Somebody who's, who's carrying loads together. You and your partner, you and your spouse, or whatever. But he's saying, he said, I'm, I'm you know, Here's a parenthesis for you. I'm asking you, my good friend here, help these ladies who have labored side by side. Now, notice, notice this again. These weren't, these weren't outlying people. These were core people. Um, these women, they've labored together. They're, they're probably friends. They're, they go to the same church. They're in the same Bible study. All right? So... This is resolvable. They're sisters in Christ. And they've worked with me. I know their names. I love them. And then he also, as he said, they worked within the gospel with Clement. Yeah, you even know my buddy Clement here. Oh, and, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the books of life. May I remind you, these are all my Christian brothers and sisters. So I want you to notice what he's doing. He's using names. He's using relationships. He's using the greater body, and he's saying this. You know what? Life is hard enough. Don't live it in isolation. You've got friends in your life for a reason. And some of them are authority, and some of them know you well, and some of them just go to the same church that you do. But all of these people can work together in tandem to resolve this conflict. And if this conflict's resolved, your life will be better. And I want to say this to all of us. Many times when we get into conflict, we're looking for people who will choose sides rather than choosing peace. We want someone that will see it our way rather than to see it God's way. And so we shop for counsel. 
looking for someone to agree with what we've already determined is right, and in doing so, we operate in blindness. And it is the good friend that you invite to tell you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. And it is the wise person who listens to things that may actually cause them discomfort for the purpose of healing, for the purpose of restored peace and relationships. So, the fact that Paul called on his true companion, he mentions Clement and others, reminds us that Paul, as busy as and important and as passionate and as urgent as he was with his life, he didn't try to navigate life on, the, on, on, on just his terms, just alone. When he traveled, by the way, he always took people with him. Remember that? Silas and Barnabas and John Mark. He was always, he traveled with someone. When he visited places, he met the folks, he remembered their names, he wrote to them, he mentions them. And often stress and anxiety and depression and other maladies of the spirit drive us toward isolation, and that simply is not wise. We need others. We need others to hold us accountable. We need others to encourage us. We need others to remind us of truth. Being around people helps us to get the focus of our own situation. And I want you to remember this. The voices of the godly can drown out the voices of demons. The voices of the godly can drown out the voices of demons. You understand that? That Satan wants to distract you and discourage you and to make you quit and to live impoverished lives spiritually because of anxiety and worry and depression and darkness. And sometimes you need someone to shout truth to you, not the lies that Satan will give you. Someone who will hug you and grab you and rescue you and encourage you. And it is the foolish person who is drowning and when someone tries to help them, shoves them away. And it is the wise person who accepts their life ring and gets pulled to safety. And by the way, this is our privilege. And I, I want to encourage all of you in the church. Again, Pastor Dan this morning. Not, not, not shouting, I'm not lecturing, I'm loving, all right? What a privilege it is for us as family in a world that is filled with disharmony and ugliness and unlikes or dislikes or whatever they call them. For us to be the person who walks into the life of someone who's hurting, who's grieving, who's got COVID, who's, who's messed up, who's broken, who's addicted, who's discouraged, even if we don't understand the circumstances, and be that person that walks up and be, and be some grace in their life. And to be that encouragement, to pay the bill, to walk the mile, to give the shirt, to do whatever it takes. That's our privilege. It's our mission. It's our responsibility. You see, we don't expect the unbeliever to show compassion. That's outside of their nature and character. If they show it at all, it's because of the common grace that God allows to have root in places on the planet. But that's certainly not their bottom line condition. 
It's been to be separated from grace, to be separated from peace and love. But for those of us who know Christ, it is our privilege to be able to walk alongside of someone and encourage them and to journey with them and to drop them a note and to make them a meal and to mow their grass and to, and to say, I love you, and to check on them during the week and to send them a text and to, and, and to thank them and to be gracious and to be generous. These are our privileges. Let me ask you, when is the last time you proactively engaged with someone else? And by the way, one of the best ways, the easiest ways to forget your condition is to find somebody else whose condition is worse and bless them and encourage them. But don't be afraid to seek help. Don't be afraid to be honest in your life community and say, I need you to pray for me. I'm going through a tough time right now. I feel very anxious and I don't know why. Or I feel very anxious and here's why. I feel depressed. I feel down. I feel discouraged. I need you to pray for me. And for the life group to be able to come and, 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 and gather around and to pray and to lay hands on them and to, and to see if there's anything they can help. What a privilege it is. And let's do that. And you say, but this is something deeper. It's more significant. It's a conflict in my home. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's an addiction. I hope. Then get help. For Pete's sake, get help. It's our privilege. I'm reminded sometimes, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm not a gifted counselor. I'm not trained in counseling beyond a rudimentary level that they, they do for guys in, in mine, but I'm certainly not a professional. But we've got a professional on campus, a biblical counselor. And, and if you need somebody to talk to, to walk you through scriptures and to spend an hour with you and, and, and to be able to meet with you on a regular basis as you get relief, Mike Koslinski is here. Call an elder. Call Mike. Talk to a pastor. Get a cup of coffee with your life group, life community leader. But whatever you do, do not navigate this world in isolation. In doing so, you lose the opportunity. Now let's look in verse 4. Verse 4 says, this is a common one. I think everybody knows this because we learned it in Sunday school. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say it. Rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say, rejoice. You know, many think that joy is a feeling that must be nurtured, but the joy of rejoice and the rejoicing that can be had as believers is not derived from a feeling. It's derived from a truth. I'm going to unpack that for you in a moment. But I'm talking about joy that's based on emotion. I'm talking about joy that's based on truth. It would be ridiculous for Paul to coldly say to people struggling, well, you just suck it up and be joyful. Have you ever known, known somebody like that too? They kind of Jesus juke you. Well, why do you feel bad? Don't you have Jesus? I mean, I've got Jesus, but I'm also very, very angry right now. I'm very, very depressed right now. And that's causing additional anxiety because I know it's a conflict. That's why I ask for help. All right? So don't give a cliche answer, but go down and, and, and look for it. Under, understand there are some things that we can do that are concrete. And one of the things is not saying, well, just suck it up cupcake. All right. It's not just get over it. Instead, it's being reminded of things you can, as we used to say in the country, hang your hat on. Something you can plant your feet on. What Paul is commanding here is to dig into your deep down confidence and believe that God is in control of everything for our good and his glory. And thus you can tap into the joy that comes with our surety in the sovereignty of God. The word here, rejoice here, by the way, comes from the Greek term karete or chirete, karete, and it is in the present imperative, which calls us to a continual, habitual, ongoing practice of rejoicing. 
And I want you to notice something here. You remember a while ago, he said, I entreat, and then I entreat, double down, right? What does he do here? He doubles down. Rejoice in the Lord always. And let me say it again. Rejoice in the Lord always. He's doubling down. He is double emphasizing this present imperative. In other words, he's saying, you're going to need to be doing this over. You're going to have to check this truth over and over and over again. And so he's saying, make this a priority. Double down, priority. All right? And he's saying, you're going to need to do this today, and you're going to need to do it again tomorrow, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day. Because you know what? Every day, Satan is trying to find a way to discourage you. Every day, he's finding a way to defeat you. Every day, he wants to, to get you to doubt your salvation, doubt God's goodness, doubt people's caring and loving, doubt all of these things. He wants you to doubt truth. You say, how do you know that? Because that's what he did in the, in the garden. What was his strategy with Eve? Did God really say? He's holding something back from you. You can't trust God. You won't really die. He didn't really mean that. At the, 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 at the root of Satan's agenda is to get you to think thoughts that are unworthy of God by doubting him. If he convince you, can convince you that God is a liar, he doesn't mean what he says, and that his word is irrelevant, he wins. That's why he used the tactic on Eve, and that's why he uses the tactic on Dan. And he'll use it on you. If he can convince me that God's word is not true, that God does not really care, that God is holding something back from me that I really should have the privilege of enjoying, if he can convince me of these things, I can live by my own decree. And at my gut and my rebellious, pride-filled nature, that's what I really want. I want to do things my way. But in doing so, I invite the consequences of that. So Paul right here is commanding, go for it, look deep, look for the joy. We live in a broken, scarred, wicked, sorrowful world that is filled with misery and pain and conflict and death. And if you think that money or status or privilege or circumstances or even other people are going to provide you with the foundation for continual joy, you're deluding yourself. The bottom line is this, that God gives us the only foundation in his sovereign design and sovereign will and sovereign authority that ought to give us any confidence at all. But when we have that confidence, things get clarified. And when there's clarification, then we see the world for what it is, and we don't have to be anxious. I want you to notice this. We're not called to rejoice in the world. He didn't say rejoice in the world always. No, he didn't say that, did he? He said rejoice in your success. No, he didn't say that. What about rejoice in fame, rejoice in preparation, rejoice in degrees, rejoice in knowledge, rejoice in reputation? He didn't say any of that. Where were his words directed? He said, rejoice in the Lord. And this fact-based joy is, is possible because of not only what we know, but who we know. And when you know God, you have reason for confidence. Now, in the moment... I don't always have confidence. I'm going to tell you this. There are times when I'm like, God, what are you doing right now? God, why am I not getting my way? God, why did you allow this to happen? God, why do I don't understand this? And by the way, most of my doubts could be solved if I would remember this one word, and that is yet. You see, because we don't see things crystal clear yet. The Bible tells us that we see through this glass darkly right now. But then face to face, we will see him. We will know as we are known. We will be able to see things with perfect clarity. But right now, there's a lot of yet in my life. I don't know sometimes what he's doing in my life yet. I don't know why this was happening to me yet. 
I don't know where I'm going next yet, but there is coming a time when all the yets get answered. And I'll be able to see things because I'll be able to see in retrospect, in hindsight, what God was doing, the tapestry he was weaving all along. And in that, I have hope and I have confidence. And let me ask you this this morning. Do you have confidence that God is who he is, that he'll do what he has said he will do, that he can save you and keep you and preserve you and will use you for his glory, and in doing so, it will be good for you? If you believe that, then you can drill down into that, and you can build on top of that, and you can have security that while you may not like your circumstances, you will not be robbed of your joy, and it will help you regain perspective. Because what God thinks of me is far more important than what the Twitterverse thinks of me. What God is doing with me is far more important than what other people think I should be doing. And when my focus is on the surety of God's sovereignty, it gives me this quiet confidence to be able to go through the storms of life. A.W. Tozer said this. I thought it was such a great quote. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. When you think about God, what do you think? You think of someone who's trying to turn you into a crispy critter? Do you think about someone who's playing a shell game with you? Do you think about someone who is angry with you all the time? Do you think about somebody who has rejected you? Or do you see God for who he is? The one who literally moved heaven and earth so that he could have a relationship with you that is so intimate that the closest thing that you and I could possibly imagine it to be would be either that of a husband and wife or a father and son or daughter. The most intimate relationships that we could consider, God has said, think about those when you think about me. And that's what God has in store for us. Number four, here's what he says, look in verse five. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. He's saying, calm down. Calm down. I don't mean that in a condescending way. I don't mean that in a trite way. But here's the idea. The word reasonableness here is sometimes translated gentle spirit. In some versions, you literally see the word, have, have, have a gentle, let, your, let your gentle spirit be known to everyone. But it comes from a Greek word that is far richer than any single English term. And in fact, you can find this same word translated in English many, many different ways in common literature and even in Scripture. Let me give you just a few of them because it'll help you kind of get a fully orbed view of the power of this one word that is translated here, reasonableness. It is sometimes translated generosity, goodwill, friendliness, magnanimity, charitable toward the faults of others, leniency, big-heartedness, moderation, forbearance, and gentleness. And the best commonly used English word that I found is graciousness. So go back and look at that, that, that admonition to you right there and think of it in those terms. Let, let your graciousness be known to everyone. Let your magnanimity, let your friendliness, let your big-heartedness, let your moderation, let your leniency, let your charitable attitude toward the other people's faults. Let those things be what you're known for. Let everybody know about those. And when you stop and think about it, this is really countercultural. 
In today's world of social media and cancellation and venom spewing and vitriol and hate speech, Scripture is clearly calling us to just calm down and be reasonable. Calm down and be gracious. Remember what Scripture says? When someone is being ugly to you, give it back to them twice, right? That's, that, no, that's not what Scripture says. No, that's not what Scripture says. And i got to tell you, there are sometimes I really, because I can get you told. All right? I got a gift for words. And when you put a keyboard in my hand, it's like putting a sword in, in other people's hands. I want to slice and, 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 and for like two seconds, those two seconds that it takes for me to finish it and hit send, it feels really good. And then I was like, oh, what have I done? Come back, come back, come back, come back, come back, come back. But then it's too late, right? The words are out. You can't recapture and put them back. And here's what the scripture is saying is, Dan, just calm down. Just calm down. Just relax. Be reasonable. Be gracious. Be magnanimous. Give other people the benefit of the doubt. When other people are being unkind, you be gracious. Oh, well, there's no fun in that. Oh, actually, there is. You know what that fun is? It's peace. And it's a lack of conflict. And it's an absence of anxiety. And it's grace. And that's what God wants us to have. Then look in verses 5 and 6 again. These are so true. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. And here's number five. Remind yourself about what you believe to be true. This word at hand can mean two things. It can mean either in space, like he's at hand right here, or in time, like it's about ready to happen. There's strong reason to believe right here that, that Paul is saying God is with you nearby. He's speaking of space, not necessarily time. And this can be a huge comfort to the Christian if you really grab hold of this. This is, this is what Paul was clinging to when he was in the Mamertine prison, when he was awaiting execution or waiting trial. He was never alone. God was at hand. He was close by. And in your darkest moment, in those times of the highest anxiety, in your deepest fears, in your most challenging trials, in your loneliest moment, the great relief from pain comes by remembering that God is at hand. He's close by. He's not abandoned you. He's not forgotten where you're at. He's not ignoring you. He's there. He may be letting you work through some things. He may be teaching you some things. He may be waiting for the right moment, but he's not abandoned you. He has not left you. One of Satan's most effective tactics is his ability to make believers forget this truth, that God is there during our times of difficulty. He wants you to feel isolated. And we seem pre-programmed to doubt God, his presence, his power, and his promises. We seem pre-programmed to want to dismiss those. And when we do that, we reap bitter consequences. This is what ultimately led to the fall of mankind in the Garden of Eden when Eve doubted God at every level. Satan strives to make us think thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. When we doubt God, we lose our perspective. We give up self-control. We become disoriented and unbalanced, and ultimately, we'll fall to defeat. All because we don't have the real confidence in who God is and what he is and what he can do. David wrote this in Psalm. After his fall, in Psalm 57, he says this, My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. Again, notice the double. My heart is steadfast. I will sing, yes, double again, I will sing praises. In other words, double down on what you know 
in your heart, that steadfast truth, God is real, he matters, his word is unchanging, you can trust him. And this presence that we have of God causes us to eliminate the anxiety that comes with the sense of fear or being forgotten or being overwhelmed. Nothing is outside of God's ability to handle it. But a little view of God will lead you to anxiety and crisis, conflict and despair every time. Look in verse 6, last part of that verse. Helps if I didn't cover it up. And it says, In everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. The sixth thing is this. we got to react to problems with thankful prayer. When we're satisfied, I'm sorry, when we are stabilized, we will respond with grateful hearts that include thankful prayer. There's three synonyms he uses there in this verse. Prayer, supplication, and requests. But notice how those three things are to be delivered. They're to be delivered with a grateful heart, not an entitled attitude, not with doubting, not with a questioning spirit, not as a challenge, not as a demand, not with a blaming voice. If you're God, you will know instead with gratitude, with thankfulness. That'll reset us. I hate cliches, but here we go. An attitude of gratitude. All right? That's what he wants us to have. Why? Because it will reset the despair. It will refocus our attention. It will remind us of who he is, what he has done, and what he has promised to do. Here's the last thing. I'm out of time. Verse 7. The scripture says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God, which surpasses our ability to comprehend it, understand it, even appreciate it, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Notice that the peace of God impacts your heart and your mind. Heart is the seat of feeling. The mind is the seat of facts, what we know. And you understand this? When we know and do the right things, the heart follows along. There's security in knowing God. There's security in knowing his word. And eventually your feelings will follow along. The Bible says, commit your ways unto the Lord and he shall establish your thoughts. When you take steps of faith, the feelings follow. When you know the truth, you can act on the truth. And then the joy is established, the anxiety lifts. What do we anticipate after that? Peace. A supernatural peace will settle on us. A sense of rational tranquility. Those are the feelings. And an honest confidence that God is in charge and has us covered and protected. Those are the facts. And when you have the feelings and the facts in alignment, anxiety disappears and we get the peace of God in our hearts and in our life. And I want you to also notice this. This is so the peace of God will guard your heart and your mind. Do you understand this? That God has given us a gift. This is a promise. That if you have the peace of God, you have the tools. The warriors, in fact, are at your disposal to be able to stand against the despair 
and the defeat and the discouragement that this world wants to throw at you. But I want you to understand something and then I'm done. You will never have the peace of God in your life until you've made peace with God. The peace of God is a byproduct of having peace with God. And how do you have peace with God? You surrender. You surrender. All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. That's what the old song says. It means this. Surrendering your ability to save yourself. Surrendering your ability to be good enough. Surrendering yourself to be devout enough. Surrendering yourself to be able to accomplish sin on your own power. Surrendering every aspect of your life and saying, Jesus, I surrender. I give to you everything. And at that moment, God forgives us of our sins, reconciles us ourselves with him. It is finished. It is paid. And we are adopted into his family, sealed by the Holy Spirit. And then our testimony is that we belong to him. That he has redeemed us and saved us. And from that moment forward, it is possible in a world filled with strife, in a world filled, filled with conflict, in a world filled with, filled with discouragement, to be able to say, anxiety, you have no power over me. You have no control. But in order to do so, we cannot take shortcuts. We have to be true to the word, and we have to be aligned with him. Be anxious for nothing. Choose joy. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, in a moment, we're going to have a song. We're going to see some people who have accepted Christ. I think one person, at least in this service, will be baptized at the end, which is the public identification with Christ. Death, burial, and resurrection. And they're making a testimony. I have trusted Christ as Savior. And I would say to you, as you watch this, if you do not know Christ as your Savior, today you can find that out. You can know that. There will be some people standing out in the lobby that have a, like a red lanyard on that says, can I pray for you? Why don't you ask one of them what it means to be a part of the family of God? We have a prayer room we'd like to invite you to. We'll give you a copy of the Bible. We'll share with you what the Bible says you need to do to become part of your spiritual family that God has designed for you. If you're anxious, if you're hurting, if you're discouraged, call us. Make an appointment with Mike or one of the pastors. Talk to one of the elders. Go to a prayer team member and let them know, look, I'm struggling right now. The anxiety is crippling. If you're having thoughts of self-harm, if you're depressed, if you're isolating, don't go through it alone. Let us be your family. Let your pastors hug you. Let your friends embrace you. Don't give Satan even an inch of your joy. Let's stand as we pray. Father, we love you. I pray, I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit will do what I can't do this morning. And that is communicate how deeply you love us and how much you care for us and how much this peace can mean in our lives if we'll just claim it. And so, Father, I pray that you'd help us to live victorious lives. Help us to be agents of grace and peace and resolving of conflict. Help us to be kind when others are ugly. Help us to be generous when others are cravenly selfish. Help us, Father, to put our feet firmly on the truth of what we know about you, that all things are under your power and control, and that we can trust you in every circumstance, and we can do so with joy. Father, may it be said of us that indeed we rejoice in you, and again we rejoice in you. Anxious for nothing, but gratefully praying thanking you for all that you've done. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.